Well, this call has been two hours and 45 minutes. Should I just leave it all in? Because people, oh. people are hungry for for three dogs in a row. Feed the beast, dude. Feed <laughs> the yeah. beast. Feed them. They've been starving. They've been starving. Uh, feed the beast. All right, broskies. Let's start a string of text messages and hopefully talk in the next month and a half of when we have another. Yes. <laughs> Oh, uh-huh. oh, hey, by the way, can this be a new season? Please, can this be a new season? Or Why, just what's your reason too? behind that? Because it makes it's, no I, sense. There is no reason. <laughs> that, is, that doesn't make any sense. Maybe I'll do it. We, the, that's it. The, that's, a, that's the best reason you could have given me for starting a new season, because it makes yeah. no sense. <laughs> and then If you had any I mean, stupid Mets reason, I never would have done it. But yeah. here's no, the thing then, what you need to do. Whatever season we were on, which what were we working on? Like Four. season. Okay, so this needs to be season six. <laughs> and then we just leave people like the world wondering. It's like, what is season five, man? Like, will it ever <laughs> it's be the lost, uncovered? It's the lost tapes. Yeah, so welcome to season six, fans. <laughs> I'm probably going to not going to do that. Three Dogs North is an attempt to objectify the subjective with little violence as possible. The following has been torn from its origins in space and time and put entirely at your disposal. Well, so who wants to start? How was your summer? How's life? Let's catch up. (laughs) Uh, Guy talk. I just want to talk tonight, guys. <laughs> Let's just I'm talk. in my just pajamas. <laughs> I feel like I've been talking all day. Actually, I haven't, but it's pretty much the only activity I've done besides huh. eat. Well, hmm. I talked yeah. to Please a tell lot. me your diet. Uh, pray, is prayer included in that? <laughs> yeah, that's a kind of talking. Yeah. But yes. It's all, all been... But then I was, on, I was on my drive home today and uh, from a, visiting someone and talking to them. And I prayed for a while in the car as well. And I was thinking, well, this is sort of, I've said that this is the point of life. I've claimed it on this podcast and to myself that relationships are everything. So I was kind of like, but I didn't do anything today. You know, it was my day off. I visited some folks and, but, uh, and I was driving home to this podcast with you guys. And I'm like, hmm, I'm about to go talk some more. So hope i'm not sick of talking i hope so too tell me what have you been up to me yeah oh huge i want to hear what you guys have been up to the cpes and whatnot yeah dude it's been uh i'll fill you in i'll fill you in here um it's been first couple days were pretty overwhelming at cpe and i feel like a lot of that honestly was just learning i don't even know what you call it hospital jargon Mm-hmm. like that um just like learning what codes and things like that that i respond to as a chaplain and uh i remember it, having to learn been... about what well, like what does rounds mean <clears throat> like yeah oh you should probably be on rounds especially if you're in the icu you know but unless somebody codes then you're totally going to be good at that and like um I, can yeah. you explain that what your yeah but words if you are? have a rapid response you need to <laughs> you need to get there um but it's yeah, I mean, it, it was just—it's like a language, man—that you're, that you're learning. Um, 
I've only had one on call shift, and that's really the only time in the summer I'll have I think like seven on call shifts, and that's the only time that I'll respond to traumas. But uh, it, but even in that, like, yeah, I mean, in the first couple days, you know, it's with a family, you know, gonna pull a guy off life support, um, and like with them throughout that whole thing. Uh, one of the traumas that that I was on uh, was a, a pretty bad car wreck of a young of a young guy, um, and you know the only thing that has really um, I guess in the first two weeks or whatever, you know even there's been some like pretty gruesome images and stuff like that that have stuck with me, uh, but the only thing that has really like freaked me out. Um, has been the hospital that I'm at, SLU, that you, the chaplains for traumas are responsible to call the families of the person. And I don't know if you guys have that or not. I don't know if that's the same everywhere. Uh, but we're the ones that actually call the families to tell them, you know, their loved one is at the hospital, blah, blah, blah. Can you and guys hear me? Okay? Yeah. Do you, do you have to yeah. explain to them their condition or just like you should no. get here? No, yeah, it's pretty much just you can you should get here. Uh and so it's like we cannot give any medical information. Uh and so and, and honestly like Which I makes don't, sense. It, like what are you gonna right. do? Like they, they ask well, what's yeah. wrong? Uh well Yeah, there's like honestly, blood. That, it's that pretty part, bad. Yeah, it looks bad. <laughs> um but he was screaming, so I don't that could be good or it could be bad. Uh but it was like it would that was just like very uh frightening to me but i found actually that like when i we only had to do that once and we actually were not able to get a hold of the family when i was on the shift and it really wasn't that bad um and so that's that's kind of the stuff i've been praying through to be completely honest is that um i'm very thankful for the like the discussions we've had and i've had in spiritual direction as well it's like just the spiritual principle that you never tell yourself how to feel. And to be completely honest, like what I have found, like doing all this different stuff at the hospital is that like the emotional side of it, I honestly has not really stuck with me. And I, I don't know if that sounds bad or not, but it's just kind of been like a, Okay, on to the next room or next, you know, patient or whatever, you know, checking in with this nurse or that doctor or whatnot. And then when I when I'm off, like I just hand it off to the next chaplain. Um, and it really like I mean, it hasn't been that long yet, but it's been very much a like it just hasn't carried with me. Kind of like I thought it would. That's what I was maybe a little bit nervous about um so it's interesting but there's a chapel in the hospital and so i go to mass every day at noon and pray for a little bit after um and i mean for real that is like that has saved me and i mean that in the literal sense this like more so than i have ever meant that uh, especially the first couple days just like some of the images and kind of the overwhelming amount of information and everything like that. Uh, like I am just 
different coming out of that noon mass. And so that's been like the biggest blessing of the summer is that every day, Monday through Friday at the hospital I'm at, mass is at noon. Like I'm, I'm able to go every day. It works out great. I just take a little bit shorter uh, lunch period and it's like a f- just a felt difference. Um, or at least it has been, you know, my first two weeks anyway. Have you guys, Uh, have you felt that doing, even just you talking about the lunch period reminds me of doing CPE and my feeling of like, wow, I haven't done like a work day in a really long time, maybe since firefighting, meaning like you wake up and you clock in at a job Mm -hmm. and then you just work with a half hour break until five. Yeah. And then you go home. Like, um, I, I, if I clocked in and clocked out in my current job as an associate pastor at this parish, I would definitely have 40 plus hours of work every week, especially because I work six days a week and often until late in the evening. But every time there's like an hour of break or sometimes two or three hours of break, um, I can do whatever I want. Yeah, I don't have yeah. to stay at work. Yeah, and it, do stuff. That, that's been very, that's been very interesting to me. And honestly, I really haven't expressed this yet, but I've almost kind of wondered if that has, like, I I wonder if I just haven't like gotten maybe as much out of the the CP experience for the first couple of weeks because of that because it's it's so this hospital chaplaincy is so different from my understanding of priesthood. I don't know how else to say that. That's like, totally, that yeah. hits it right on the head for me. Because it's like, yeah, I mean, that's it. Like when, at least my understanding right now as a naive seminarian that hasn't spent a single day as a priest, but at least the desire in me is that hey, when you're ordained, like you're, you know, quote unquote, open to business 24 seven, just like a dad is when he has a kid. And so, you know, not, not to say it's going to happen. Except that the dad also has another job. True. True. <laughs> uh, but that's exactly it. Like even on internship at the seminary, whatever, like there's very much, yeah. If something, if a window comes open in the middle of the day for a few hours, like you're free to do what you want but then if it you know the next week if you have two funerals come up that you need to to get to or you know when i was like at the parish i would serve those or whatnot and all of a sudden you didn't have that and then you had stuff in the evening it's just a way different busyness and i feel like as a chaplain at this hospital it's very much that like i get there at 8 30 and i leave at five i get to go to mass in the middle of the day I've had very cool encounters with people. I mean, nothing uh, crazy. Some of the moments have been very intense um, and kind of gruesome. But the whole experience is, I think, very good for me. But it's just it's just so different than my idea of priesthood. That's the best way I can articulate it. Well, and priesthood is a lot of different things. That's my experience sure. of CPE yeah, was, um, it, it was a grind. 
It really was mm-hmm. a grind, because, especially because there's like a number of hours you have to do of clinical time, not right. in group, not in class, but, you know, because CPE is divided into the, like some days are class days or, or whatever, and then you have to clock all these hours basically sitting with people in the hospital. And it was great training because it's it's part of the job of the priest. And for me, part that I was most intimidated by was like, what do you do when somebody, what do you do or say, or how do you respond in a way that's not really self-conscious? Because the last thing you want to do, walk into a, a room where someone's really suffering or people are really mourning because they're losing a loved one. And then just think about yourself and like, am I doing the right thing? <sighs> yeah. You know, the best advice I got was show up and don't run away. Like actually yeah. go and then just plow through the awkwardness, as we've said. Sure. And just, just stay there like a dingus until something good <laughs> happens. Oh, um, yeah. Because, you're, you know, your social skills or your, quote, pastoral skills are never going to be so good that you just walk in and you're like a superhero. That's not even like you wouldn't even want that. It would be so weird and flashy yeah. when you go into a. But it gave me a lot of confidence that no matter what, even if I had no idea what was behind the door, I could handle it because I did it, you know, day in and day out an entire summer. And eventually you just get used to it. But the fact that there was no variation, the fact that it was like no matter whether you need a break or not, just go keep going to visit patients rooms. And that that really wore on me by the end of the summer. I was like, I peace. I'm leaving. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, you know, a really encouraging message for you guys that just are starting it right now. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And one, well, <laughs> to be honest, like a part of it. So I enjoy working in a business setting and it's something that I grew up very comfortable with. And, um, you know, it gives structure. And so you, you when you know what what people are expecting of you then it's like, okay, I know what you want from me and I can do this or I can't do this. You know, it's very clear set guidelines. Um, So I do enjoy that aspect of it. But I'm also an employee of this hospital in a sense. And so like the other day I got called to um, a situation and it was one of the rapid response teams and it was man, it was gruesome, you know, and I just found myself the whole time trying to like control people and control people in the sense of like, I need them physically to stay in this place so they don't spill out into the hospital and freak out everyone who's having babies next door. Um, cause they were losing somebody and mourning very emotionally, very dramatically. Yeah. And like, I'm sure that's part of the priest's job, but the whole time I felt like a security guard, you know, and I'm like trying to keep people from running out of the room. And um, I've had a couple of situations like that where because like one of the big things that they stress, at least in in my program, is to have empathy for the patients and to have empathy for the families. And that's really what you're going for. You're not going to fix anything or solve any problems because a lot of these things are unsolvable problems and so you're just kind of there trying to think like what's the best way I can make this situation that's a bad situation how can I make it better for the nurses for the patient for the family and it's very like human practical stuff but like getting Kleenexes and trying to get out of the way of the nurse and trying to get family out of the way of the nurse and trying to calm people down and stuff like that. 
But, I mean, and again, I'm sure that the priest will do a lot of these things, but it, there wasn't much, like, conversation or connection that was going on. And um, I, I found that really difficult, that I just felt like I had a job and I was just doing this job. And not that it was devoid of relationship, because what I was doing was important for the situation. But, um, yeah, I guess I found it difficult like to have that emotional connection to what was going on. Uh, and maybe because it was so high stress that it like didn't really hit me, but it definitely didn't hit me until well after, like when I was praying about it, walking back to my room, um, you know, it kind of all hit me at once, but it's definitely different than how I envision living my priesthood. I think, you know, cause when I finished with that family, I went back to my room and slept and waited for the next phone call, you know, when I was on call. And so it was, you know, I I really had this sense of like, okay, I'm doing a job and I'm here to help the hospital, um, which is a a fine and a good thing. But, you know, it's not, yeah, I guess it's not really what my priesthood, um, at least I envisioned the priesthood to look like. Um, So it's, yeah. I, it's been a lot, actually. Something that you said a while back when you were talking about your CPE, you would go fishing. And you said that like you would just go fishing so that you could feel your feet on the ground mm-hmm. or something like that. Like remember your legs worked and just mm-hmm. kind of be connected to nature and creation and things like that. And that was actually a consoling thought for me um, after responding to a couple of traumas. It's like, okay. I'm still walking. I am, uh, I have my feet on the ground. Like I'm still here and the Lord is still here with me. Um, but it was just a very human experience where, yeah, you just kind of leave the family and you don't really know where they are. Um, like don't worry, don't know where they are emotionally or spiritually, but I did the best that I could with what the hospital was asking me to do. And, now I go back and lay down in my room and wait for another trauma to occur so that I can go and make sure that the family doesn't run around in the hospital. And it was difficult. It, it really was difficult. And you're, you know, I was, was there kind of alone in the hospital. And um, plus, you didn't bring your podcasting stuff, which was a total ugh yeah, mistake number one. Rookie yeah. mistake. Please. Mistake number one. Won't do that again. I'll tell you that much. Um, See, that's, that's interesting even to hear you articulate it because, like I said, the one that really sticks out for me so far is a particular trauma uh, got called to. Yeah, it, wa- it, it wasn't uh, dealing with a family, but it's a pretty gruesome site that we were kind of going back back into. And I don't know, we're down, was down there for 30 minutes, maybe, maybe an hour. I don't know. Is this like ER stuff you guys are talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like in the in the ER, mm-hmm. um, and so you know it, it was crazy. Like all the 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 different like surgical teams were coming in, getting this guy prepped for different things and uh, all that. And that's you know just being honest. Like what I found was you know quote unquote did my part of the job to be done and then for me it just kind of like clicked off honestly like I went back up and that was it 
Um, and the next day when I was praying about it, like with the images and everything, uh, it kind of, it kind of bothered me that, that it, that that experience didn't bother me more, honestly. Um, but it was just that, that's, that's kind of like the, the thing that I just kept like going back to is that, that principle of like, you don't tell yourself how to feel like in these situations. And it was exactly that. Like, I feel like I was very faithful to what I was asked to do. And in the very, very little bit of training I had had um, to do it, and I was like, yeah, I did my best. And, and it just, you know, I don't know. I don't know how to play, play out the rest of the summer. But that's kind of like my initial thinking was like, oh, okay, like on to the next thing, which is very strange. Like I, didn't, I did not anticipate that at all, at all. Um, yeah. But so anyway. No, I had the same thing. The the situation, the daughter showed up like from a basketball game and oh man, she was obviously very upset. Her mom had just gone into she just coded essentially and you know, they were trying to resuscitate her, bring her back, and we had to put her in a side room and it was just me and her. She's 15 and um her the patient's niece and she just sat there and was looking at me in the eyes and I was sitting just right across from her maybe three feet and she asked is my mom gonna die why is my mom dying you know why is why is she gonna be taken away from me and I was so surprised I mean that's like one of the deepest questions I've ever been asked one of the most mysterious suffering filled questions I've ever been asked to my eyeballs and I looked her dead in the eyes with perfect eye contact and said kind of like what they told me to say in training and it was the right response I think mm-hmm. and and then I just thought like what else do I need to do to what help was the it? situation you say? I just said I, I don't know and uh, I'm really sorry right but the doctors are trying their best but um you know I don't have an answer for you and almost felt nothing and I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it, you know? And then we went into the room and was with the family and like was just thinking, what, what do I need to do with this family to help this situation? And um, never like entered into their mourning with them or anything like that. Um, just felt very, yeah, and I don't know, it freaked me out. Like not robotic, but just very businesslike. Um, and I hope it didn't come across like that. Like, oh, this guy's just here doing his job. But that's how I felt. I don't don't think it did. Like, you know, just, just doing my job here and now I'm going to wait for the next call. And yeah, I mean the group that I'm with, it's, um, it's really interesting because it's, I'm the only Catholic and there's other, there's Protestants that are there with me. But I don't know if I, if y'all remember me talking about my, a uh, summer of training with the military with mostly Protestants. And they were, you know, like classic kind of Southern Bible thumping Jesus lovers. I mean, they just love Jesus and scripture was it, the word of God. And so that was kind of what I was expecting with my group, which is a whole interesting thing in and of itself, the, yeah. the CPE group method. Um, but the Protestants that I'm with are much closer to like, a humanism style. It's, I mean, there's definitely strands of relativism um, in the teaching method and in the pastoral 
presence method. Um, and so, oh, a lot, yeah, like, a lot of like, don't impose your theology on people and stuff like that. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. like, we don't know what to do with suffering and, um, you know, yeah, it's that, like, that's I, interesting I, that you, that you say that, sorry to interrupt, but that's, that was kind of, I guess be my next point. And I would love to hear your guys' thoughts on this. Um, and like I said, I'm two weeks into this. Like, yeah. I don't want to make these grand statements or anything like that on it. But I'll tell you what, man, like it has made me the thing that has come up over and over in my prayer. And like I said, it's been in this like chapel in the hospital. And it's kind of like the only thing I can think of as far as image wise or from a book I've read is from one of the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, I don't even remember what one it was, like the third or fourth one where the, the kids are back in Narnia and Peter and is, is the other one Edmund or something. And yeah, Edmund, yeah. they like slowly go through this transformation once they're in Narnia and they become kingly again. And how Lewis describes it is really cool. And he says that just breathing the Narnian air like brings them back to who they were. And and he talks about like just how their whole body like and their physical presence changes just from breathing the Narnia air. And I mean, we know how jacked I am anyway, so I don't think my physical presence changes that much <laughs> right. from my time yeah. in the chapel. But that's like how I feel when I go to the chapel is honestly like I don't say anything in this prayer time that I have during the day. It's just kind of like recouping from whatever I've just seen or whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just, it, you know, at one time it's at the it's two things at the same time. Like I have no answers to like the question of suffering and like faced with these just stark, stark images and realities and very real stories. Like, yeah, I mean, it, it's an absolute mystery. But at the same time, I mean, what I've learned from just my time in seminary and Catholic theology, man, it holds up. And, like, that's when, just in yes. our our group time and everything, I've honestly enjoyed it a lot. Like, I like my group a lot. Um, but I have never been more thankful to be Catholic than right now, honestly. Hmm. Um, so I'd love to hear you guys' thoughts on that. It's a super cool image with the chapel. And by the way, man, I am so jealous. Just yeah, you don't you don't have oh. mass at your hospital? No, man. We have yeah. this quasi everything slash nothing chapel yeah, meditation yeah. room. Yep. Yeah. <clears throat> I honestly, I will specifically start praying for you at mass because I I don't know if I could do it with with that. Please anyway, do, man. And I, yeah. and I forgot you were in St. Louis. That that's also really cool. I'm, yeah, I I bet you're loving that. Um, oh yeah. Yeah, I. Ugh, I don't even know, man. I mean, there's so much. One of the big things that clicked for me on CPE was when they were presenting to us the job of the chaplain. They kept saying, "We don't want you. We don't want you to change your views, but we don't want you to." say them in such a way that will impose them on other people. So you kind of have this, <clears throat> I don't know what you would call it. The best thing I can think of is like relativistic filter that you shove your theology through 
and then it pops out in these pastoral responses. And so like whatever your theology is, is distilled down to open-ended questions and really like good ways to converse with somebody that will allow them to articulate a feeling that they're working through. And once I understood that the, the hospital doesn't want me to be a Catholic seminarian. And I, I don't mean that like they don't like Catholicism or they don't want me to be who I am. They want me to be <clears throat> an ambassador from the hospital of the culture to whatever culture that walks through the door. Sure. And so the big thing that clicked for me was like the way that they understand what we do chaplaincy at my hospital is people are coming in from all over the place with all tons of different backgrounds from different countries all over. And no matter who walks through the door, we want to be able to meet the needs of those people. And if they're coming from another culture, what they view as religion, they would probably categorize it as a part of a cultural practice. So like, yeah, you provide religious support to them because it's a part of their culture. And if they want to write performed, that's a part of this cultural need that you need to meet. And right. it's like, are you meeting their spiritual needs? Or right. I feel like you could word it like that almost. Yeah. Yeah. And we, yeah, we use that word as well. Pastoral, pastoral care, spiritual guidance or whatever you call it. Um, and <clears throat> I guess to have that click for me of like, they just want me to be a, a cultural ambassador, um, which I can do that. I can do that. Uh, it's not what I want to do with my life. I, I want to tell people about a guy who has an answer to like the biggest problem. And a lady, so I work in uh, what's called the NICU, which is the neonatal intensive care unit. So the hospital that I'm at, apparently they uh, give birth to more babies than any other hospital in the world, except for one in China. Oh, so we have <laughs> tons of babies, tons of babies. But that also means we have tons of um, infant deaths. So like, oh, man. Yeah. you know, for every thousands yeah. or so that come through, some don't make it or different complications and things like that. Yeah. So it's yeah. not always a trauma, but it's like kind of a long term, um, really difficult situation, infant deaths, you know, things like that. And one of the ladies that I was talking to is my supervisor for my unit. She said, um, you know, I was telling this story about this lady being resuscitated and the family was just praying for healing. And then um, like she voiced a story about another family that tried to pray their their uh, loved one back to life. And she said, what? Don't do that. He's going to have to die again. He's going to go through the same thing again. Like you can't escape this reality of death. So why would you want him to raise from the dead? He's just going to die. He's going to have to do it again. And I thought to myself, that's exactly right. That's to that's the question. That's the the big problem of suffering and evil and it's death. And w instead of coming into a room and saying there's no answer to it or like there's nothing, there's no they wouldn't say this, but there's no hope that I can speak of. That's a that's a real difficult thing for me because at least at this point in my life I'm very convicted that there's a, an answer 
to it, you know, and, and that's it. But it's a very, it's a very strong answer. And there's to not be able to say that to anybody, um, you know, unless they lead there, then you're more than welcome to. Uh, I get, it's a difficult thing because it's, it's not what I want to do for the rest of my life. The rest of my life, I want to tell people about the one answer to the big problem that exists. And so it's difficult to be put into situations where you just feel very inadequate in that sense. Um, and it, you know, it's not going to fix these problems. I'm, that's not what I'm saying. But yeah. um, it speaks a word of hope to people that resonates to their souls. And I feel like devoid of this biggest tool that I can use. Um, and it's, I, it's just a real struggle. Um, I'll tell you what I did, guys. Um, because I, I too thought like, okay, I'm, it's a weird middle ground at, it's called clinical pastoral education. You're being educated. It's all, it's not really like they can't live without you. Like they hired mm -hmm. you. You're working for free. It's all I'm about paying you. paying them. Yeah, I'm you're paying literally them paying them work. so you can work for them. So <clears throat> if you kind of approach it, I think it was helpful for me to, to approach it like that. I even approach much of what I do right now as training um, mm -mm. in the first few years of priesthood. You're just learning, you know, everything for the first time. Um, but I, I thought like, okay, so they want me, like you said, to sort of be a chameleon, you know, I'm... No matter who walks in the door, like Catholic, Christian, Muslim, or Jew, I am their spiritual support. But to be totally honest with you, if a, a Muslim uh, family did come in, they weren't very practicing Muslims in the ER one time and I was on call. And you feel, I, I felt like you did with that girl in the waiting room where you couldn't do anything or like that security guard role you had. Where you're like, yeah, I, I just don't fit here. Like you don't, you would never, you would never ask me to pray with you because our beliefs, you know, my, I'm not a Muslim and our beliefs are different enough that, and our practices are different enough. Like for me to just spot off a, a quick prayer to whoever, you know, it, it got me really good at reading a room, you know, because th th for the most part, people are some kind of Christian and then you have to read, you know, how, how Christian are you? Are you so Christian that you pray to Jesus or are you just kind of like a cosmic God karma person or whatever, but they're mostly formed in the Christian culture. And so, you know, like it taught me how to learn about people first um, and to offer to pray, to have more courage to offer to pray with people even not knowing 100% what they really believe, uh, but sort of to push them in some direction of like opening up to at least transcendence of some kind of purpose and meaning because you're so focused on numbers and, and body parts and prognoses and stuff like that when your family member or you are, are sick. You're not thinking about anything big picture. You're just, you're, your world is as big as your body, you know? And so you kind of can help to be a little bit of a midwife to to contemplation that way but i also by the end of the summer had no qualms because no you're not in the room with anybody who's in charge of you and so i started asking people questions and and you know listening to their answers about their beliefs or, or their experience or their feelings and their desires 
and then not being ashamed to say like, well, you know, I think God is like this and this is what I believe and, and, you know, sometimes that helps, sometimes it didn't, I don't know, but, uh, I totally agree with you, Mike, like we, we exist to announce good news, you know, and, and to just go in and I, I think that like to your point, was it you, Rob, talking about getting coffee and napkins and stuff for people when they're in crisis no, that mode? that was Mike as well. I think that a lot of people would in that crisis, like you were describing, where it's a rapid response, usually meaning like somebody was stable, but now they're, you know, unstable and maybe dying. And so they get all the doctors and nurses on the floor and like do whatever they need to do. And the family's in there and they're like, you know, losing it and all, you know, and then you're in there and you're supposed to what? Be like, hey guys, uh, let's just think about the transcendent meaning of suffering for a minute. You know, like <laughs> what do you, most people would beg for a job. Like just, I'll get the coffee, you know, mm-hmm. something just to do so that I don't have to engage this. And, and you both have been talking about, and this has been my experience, even today, all my life, I thought maybe I was uh, like emotionally dead inside because after I would leave some kind of situation that would, should leave a, like an emotional hangover, all I really feel is tired, uh, yep. you know, <laughs> and I'll remember it those sounds, people in my prayers. Honestly, it sounds so heartless. I know, but yeah, I, I think it's a sweet mercy of God that you don't, you yeah, don't maybe. actually have to take on everybody's pain. Um, at least in a permanent way, like you can momentarily be with that person in their pain. Mm. Um, but I mean, you, it would kill you if, if yeah. you, if you felt the same pain as a daughter losing her mother, uh, you know, what, 40 times in a day? And then that stayed with you. And then all your life, you never lost any of it. Yeah. It would just, it yeah. would crush you. Yeah. Um, but, you know, speaking of tired, I, I had this insight. Um, the week of Corpus Christi, I used it in my Corpus Christi homily. Because I had a really hard funeral one day. Um, and it was it stretched back before the funeral too. This uh, young guy, twenty seven, died, and I he was the cousin of some guys and girls I knew from RCIA, and I knew their mother well. And then so they came in, they were talking. It was just like one of these you're engaged with this family for a while on and off about this really tragic thing, and there's a lot of questions of like why did God do this, and sort of similar. I mean, even though we do have the answer, Mike, you know. People come to you and you're like, yeah, I have no idea. Why did God do that? That's not for us to know. Um, right, right. You can give them the framework of revelation. But even then, it's more just like the most effective thing I did the day he died when they came over to see me was give this woman a hug. And uh, and it was just one of these like she was a small Mexican woman and she just buried her head in my solar plexus and cried for a while. And I was like, well, did I really need to go? half an hour trying to say different things. <laughs> I could have just done this from the very beginning. But in any event, um, after this funeral is finally over this, this one morning, uh, I got a call to go bring communion and basically viaticum and the last sacraments to a woman who was dying. And I knew I had af- afternoon stuff to do too. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, this day, you know, thinking about myself. And uh, I was having to skip lunch and I go to the church and get a host out of the tabernacle and I put it in my pocket and I'm driving 
to this person's house and I'm literally talking to Jesus in my breast pocket. I was like, I was very aware of his presence in my car with me. And I usually don't turn on the music when I'm driving with the, with the Eucharist. So I'm talking to him. I'm just like, why do you make yourself so helpless? <laughs> you know, it's like just this frustrated feeling of like, you know, for a while now I've been working and doing stuff for you and you're God. Why do I have to give you a ride? <laughs> you know, like, why do you make yourself need me? to bring you to someone's house, to put you in someone's mouth, at, you know, for their last communion or whatever it is. And it was that moment where I realized, like, uh, I'm lucky that I have a job. I'm lucky that I have anything to do in the kingdom of God. Because he could do it all himself. But for some reason, he's made himself so helpless in his power. He's completely emptied himself of all that power so that we, it would like, it's like a baby, you know, when a baby is born in a family and no matter how, it doesn't matter, I mean, sometimes people are so selfish, they don't care about their children. But for the most part, any human being all of a sudden has generosity drawn out of their heart that they didn't even know was there. They wake up at two in the morning because the baby's crying. Like the baby is the weakest person in the entire house, the most helpless person, but they dominate the house. What they want goes, you know, because it's soft power. It's the, it's the most powerful power there is. Of like, I need you and you love me, so do this thing. And I realized like, this is, okay, you're saving me right now. Because what would I be doing if it weren't for you needing me to drive you to this person's house to be in solidarity with their suffering and, and, and get out of myself, you know? Um, rather than just be, so I guess my, my overall point is with the CPE thing, like, a lot of it you feel like I need to be doing something like, you know, what is my role here? And uh, you do, you will by the end of the summer have, because you guys are intelligent and insightful and, and sympathetic guys, you'll very, you'll make connections with people. You'll, it'll blow say your more, mind. Hey, say more about that. <laughs> it'll blow your mind. And uh, I still think about and pray about a lot of those people that I, that I saw sure. and, and, whatnot uh and it's and it's actually very cool that you get to be with people who aren't catholic a lot you're, you're just the hospital chaplain for everybody who yeah. comes in because yeah. as a priest you pretty much just go see your parishioners um mm -hmm. and you can take for granted a certain set of beliefs and whatnot but uh i think overall it just it was like implosion therapy for get the hell over yourself man it's not about you do you know what i mean yeah. 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 Like you're I mean, lucky you're lucky that you have a job at all. That you can like that God has deigned to make himself need you to be the one to go into a room, even to get coffee, you know? But to be around all this stuff. I mean, because it's real life, that's the thing about it. I mean, people are suffering constantly in hospitals. Uh yeah. and you that's very yeah. You go into it, one and you're like, Whoa, this is happening everywhere. It freaking is real life, man. It it really, it really is. And it for me, and we've talked a little bit about this. And uh, well, I like that reflection a lot. Of mm -hmm. um, like, you know, why do you make yourself so so helpless? Um, yeah, that's a good, that's good stuff to to pray on. Um, but I don't know where I was going with that shoot. Somebody say something. I lost my train of thought. <laughs> 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 yeah. 
I have to wear a tie and a jacket to work every day. I had to go to Goodwill my first week. My first week of CPI, I had to go to Goodwill to get a bunch of slacks, khaki pants, and shirts. Did the same thing. I have the cheesiest jacket that I wear to work almost every day. And I have another jacket that definitely doesn't fit me, but it's a blazer, so I can wear it with whatever. I thought it was bad. I had to wear a tie every day. Holy Oh, man. Yeah, tie and a jacket. But... One of the big things, actually, so my little sister, Teresa, uh, was named after Mother Teresa. And, well, let me, let me, let me go back. So uh, after a while of being on call, like my first two on calls, I had two adult deaths in, in each and a couple of infant deaths. They call them P&Ls, perinatal losses. And I, I was just like, drew drug all over the hospital and kind of got back and felt like all these terrible things happened. And what did I do? Like, I didn't do anything. I didn't really help the family at all. I came and gave them a bereavement packet and like, what am I doing here? Why am I doing this? Um, and more or less it, you know, it came back to this answer of, um, you know, this is a part of formation and obviously the Lord wants me to be here. So whatever it is that they want me to do here, I'm going to do it to the best of my ability. Um, and the thing that came to mind was my little sister, Teresa, who was named after Mother Teresa. Um, she just loves Mother Teresa. As a matter of fact, she's she's like 11 and she's trying to raise money right now to go to Rome for her canonization. It's like the Whoa. sweetest thing. I'm like... <laughs> We're like, Teresa, that's incredible, but it may not happen, so you need to be prepared for that. And somehow You're she got her hands... for all the money you have, just yes. FYI. Yeah, that's definitely going to happen sooner or later. Um, but she somehow came across a Mother Teresa relic that's like um, a part <laughs> of her old sari that uh, it's like in one of the holy cards that is laminated into it. And I asked this her. This is the most to... Mets story I've ever <laughs> yeah. heard. By the yeah, way. you know, hey, it, my eleven-year-old sister, named after Mother Teresa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's fundraising so she can go to Rome to <laughs> go to Mother Teresa's canonization. Happened to come across a relic. Anyway, continue. Well, it's one of those. I, it it's uh, similar to like your your JP two one when you first got it. Yeah. I think it was in a holy card. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It kind of yeah. had that little circle laminated out. So it's, I mean, it's a relic and it's amazing, but it's not like a piece of her bone or anything like that. So I was like, Teresa, let me see that thing. And I somehow like held on to it. I forgot to give it to her. And I mean that (laughs) sincerely. I forgot to give it to her. And I found it in my pocket and I've had it in my wallet. And for some reason that came to me as I was praying about this, like, what the heck am I doing? I'm just like being with people who are dying and not helping them at all. And then Mother Teresa was just that big source of consolation and just this mystery of like, what was she doing for her whole life? What she did, she would just be with dying people and they would just die in her arms and she didn't make them any better. She couldn't even perform the sacraments or anything like that. She just was arms for people to die in. Like the most messed up, sick, gross people in the entire world, she went out and found them so that they could die with dignity. And 
it still, I mean, it doesn't make sense. It, it makes sense intellectually, but that was just a huge consolation for me. Like if Mother Teresa can do that, I can do that version of it here in the States. And I can be with families when people are dying and I really don't get what I'm doing, but it's what I'm called to do and love right here. And I feel like I'm just being a businessman, but this is what I'm called to do. And so I'm just going to like do it to the best of my ability and um, meet all of their human needs that I can, not fix any problems and just be with people when they die. Um, and so, I don't know, that was just, it was a huge grace for me to be able to have that relic and for that to come to mind. Um, and it, I, I don't want to say it fixes the sense of inadequacy by any stretch of the imagination because it really doesn't, but it adds so much meaning and purpose to to what we're doing, you know? Because like you said, we're we're engaging with people that we would never engage with. And you get to love a population of people that's so diverse. Anybody can come into that hospital. And like Mother Teresa didn't ask people their religious beliefs. She just held them and they died. Mm. And it's just this beautiful image of God's mercy. As a lot of times, like we don't even know, I don't even know what that looks like. Or the people who are dying may not even know what Mother Teresa looks like or what she believes in. But she's renewing their human dignity in a time and throughout a life that maybe had none. And if I can do that, um, that's pretty great. And it doesn't always feel like I'm doing anything significant by any stretch of the imagination. Um, But I, I don't know. That was just something that came up. Yeah, man. Well, I think especially as a <clears throat> as a man, it's hard to not feel like you're accomplishing something or that you d- you're not going into situations and fixing things and making them better than you found them. Mm-hmm. And as a person with a priestly calling, you don't want to just perform some function like getting coffee or getting chairs or Kleenex. You look at the you look at the scene and you're like, no, there's something here for me to do. I'm not even sure what it is, but it's it it engages the spirit, you know, that sometimes is like about to leave a body. And you, because you're called to be a priest, I think, don't want to be a coffee gopher, you know. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's like altruism for the sake of altruism. Like it really does feel like this philanthropy like doing good I don't know but it you know Mother Teresa she's kind of one of those saints that I think our generation in particular can just be like and and then there's Mother Teresa like wow Mother Teresa you just kind of throw her name I, out I, she's probably the most referenced <laughs> saint I don't know very much about her but I probably reference her more in homilies than most pretty much any <laughs> saint like I, I mean look at Mother Teresa <laughs> yeah she was really charitable yeah but look she did adoration every day for an hour and she went to confession all that, you know, she's the perfect, like, mm-hmm. uh, both and Catholic saint, yeah. you know, that the, resonates with like any, everyone knows she's good. I yeah. mean, Christopher Hitchens said he made that whole movie about, uh, hell's angel or whatever. I don't even, shouldn't even mention it. It's such garbage, but, um, 
how she was kind of a charlatan or, or whatever. But I mean, that is so fringe and everybody knows it's baloney. Like she's pretty much like, yeah, she did what our culture values Christianity for, which is charity and taking care of people and not caring about what religion they were, just serving and serving. But the whole reason she did it was because she believed in what? The Eucharist, the sacraments, Christ and his divinity and things that our culture is not so cool about uh, believing. But yeah, dudes, well, keep on keeping on. That, that advice of show up and don't run away really helped me like midway through. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. that uh, those are two. That's a two step process. That's uh, pretty hard to screw up. Relax. I don't think I mean, are you guys particularly empathetic people? Did you grow up and like just always feel empathy towards people? I, I don't. That's why I didn't. My mom said when I was telling her I was thinking about becoming a priest, she said to me, quote, you're not a nice enough guy to be a priest, <laughs> uh, which I kind of was a bit of a wound, but I got over it. But I think it's true. <laughs> like, I can't believe that this is what I ended up doing. Yeah, I'm the, I'm I'm the same. I'm the same way. Like, yeah, I would. Yeah, I would. I would get upset when I was little. I would get upset like way over way more over like an animal dying or a pet dying than like people suffering or anything like that. Honestly, very much so. Closest thing I had to really deep empathy as a kid was like watching TV shows where people were embarrassed or in trouble and feeling like, oh, gosh, I hate this. Yeah. You know, for the other person. Mhm. Mhm. No, I was I was actually a deeply empathetic person. That's, and I can I can remember the No, I've just always, I don't know, but I I remember the first time that um well, I guess this is one of the strongest memories of empathy that I ever had was <laughs> this is dang dude, y'all are getting a flood of meth stories today, but <clears throat> my dad when I was younger, uh I don't know why the heck he it makes no sense, but he uses just a bar of soap everywhere, and that's like his soap. And so he doesn't have shampoo or conditioner or anything. <laughs> really? <laughs> so he just like... He probably got that from being on ships. Yeah, probably. I mean, he violently scrubs everywhere. <laughs> and somehow a giant chunk of soap got lodged in his ear, like in his oh, head. Gross. <laughs> I don't... He was rubbing his ears... Slash washing his hair with this bar of soap and like a huge chunk oh. broke off. And it must got have been in, in like the wafer when a bar of soap gets down to that little wafer kind of bendable thing. I bet oh, you yeah. he was he was trying to get in there and it broke <laughs> off. I have no clue. But what we ended up doing was playing hospital at my house and my mom poured hydrogen peroxide down his <laughs> ear into his head. And bear in mind at this point, I'm like, dad is God. <laughs> And he's unfazed by everything, you know? And he screamed like a huge girl. Like, I, it freaked me the hell out how much pain my dad was in. Like, you know, like laying on the ground, writhing. Oh, it was horrific. I can't and in any way imagine that pain because I've, I've never felt like really profound ear pain but what hydrogen peroxide and a deeply lodged wedge of soap in your ear would feel like i have no clue it just he, sounds awful 
And he was doing like the, I'm going to be tough and kind of hold it together. And all the kids were around watching him. And it was just so unbearable. He couldn't hold it in. And I had to run out of the house because it was causing me so much pain. And I guess it it worked. Like it it got rid of the the soap lodged in his ear. But yeah, I've always been empathetic. Three Dogs North are Juice, Seabisk, and Michael Metz. Conversations have been edited to sound smarter. Audio and transcripts of this episode are exclusive property of Mundelein Seminary and may not be rebroadcast without the express written consent of Major League Baseball. And down.